0: a deep stillness stole upon me and taught me in whispers the language of angels. With the lisping voice of my newborn freedom, I tried to speak. Suddenly, the lights in thy temple wrote brilliantly in letters of light. In my little chamber of quietness, I am ever at rest." I never speak now, but with the voice of silence. Through my silence, O divine lover, converse thou eloquently with me. Seems that today we have the sermon of the creatures. (laughs) So (laughs) we've got the cat, we've got the, is this bird or squirrel over here? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, so does God hide the truth? It seems that an aspect of human nature is that we, unfortunately, oftentimes uh, find fault outside of ourselves for the way things are with our circumstance and our lot in life. And it doesn't take much by extension to uh, get to the place where oftentimes people will arrive, where they find fault with God. Does God hide? And God is away from me. God has not come to me because I've done something wrong, because I'm unworthy, or perhaps as the sibling, I grew up with uh, sisters and brother, and uh, thinking that the parent, one or the other, is favoring another. We sometimes look at God that way. Maybe God has a favorite, but it's not me. Or my mother likes my younger sister better. My father likes his first son more. This kind of thing. It seems just an aspect of human nature. And To a greater or lesser degree, sometimes we bring that to the path as well in subtle ways, but so much so that oftentimes the master, God, is right in front of us, and we fail to see the divine. Yogananda, a God-realized master, thousands, tens of thousands came to him, to his lectures, were with him personally, oftentimes in very close proximity, and hear a master, but they weren't able to recognize that. Swami Kriyananda described being in the hermitage there at Mount Washington when Yogananda was there. He said, sometimes it was like a revolving door, people just in and out and in and out, and here is a god realized being someone who is really willing and able to be for them on their uh, be there for them on every level if one wanted that right in front and we cannot see It always reminds me, and I I love to share this story, when I grew up, I grew up uh, in Southern California, very close to the lake shrine, which is one of Yogananda's hermitages that he established in this country. And routinely we would go to the lake shrine after breakfast. Next door at that time, there was a restaurant uh, within a inn, the Santa Inez Inn. It was a very beautiful motel-like place. It was all white stucco in the Spanish style with red tile roof and bright magenta bougainvillea just spilling over the roof and cascading down the walls and a beautiful pool. And there was a dining room and people who weren't uh, staying there were welcome to come for brunch. And so it was a routine. We did this with regularity. And always at the end of the meal, after filling ourselves, we asked for just one more basket of bread. And that we shoved into Mom's purse. And we would go over to the lake shrine, and we would walk around the lake and feed the swans. And again, with great regularity, this was always a place for me of profound peace, and comfort. So, in fairness to me, I would say that I got it on a certain level. But beyond that, I never, ever tuned in to Yogananda, to what this place was spiritually, to these teachings, all of it over the head, until I came onto this path. And it's just, it's such a fine example again of the divine being right there. And we don't yet see it. Is there something wrong with us? That's what, you know, again, human nature. We tend to think there's something wrong with us. We're unworthy. You know, we're not capable of understanding. We did something wrong. But it's all about timing. It's all about divine timing. And we look at this world, we perceive things based on our experience in life. Based on... Uh, Our faith, you know, whatever we can bring to that moment, allows us to see. I remember many years ago, Ananta and I were backpacking on the Northern California coast. We were trying to go to the Lost Coast, for those of you who know that place. But at the time, the Lost Coast remained lost. (laughs) And we ended up at a place south from there, which is very infrequently explored for reasons that became immediately obvious to us. It's it's hilly, it's the coastal range, and the trail goes up and down and up and down, and it does this for much farther than we cared to explore. It was it was very arduous. It it really almost did me in. But the point Uh, here is that it was very beautiful, very, very beautiful. But in that part of the um, region, the uh, cloud cover is very low and the fog And it's socked in about two-thirds up the height of these very steep mountains. And it's always like that. So as you're going along, up and down, and up and down, you keep going in and out, you know, from obscurity to clarity of vision, from obscurity to clarity of vision. And this is just what the experience is like. You can hear The sea lions at the coast, somewhere far away, you can't see the edge of the range or the cliff or the, barely the path. And, but you can't see them. And it's a, it's an analogy, a beautiful analogy, really, for the spiritual path. Because on subtler and more gross levels, we go out of this consciousness of being in obscurity and having clear vision. And why is it like this? Why is it like this? Sri Tashwar was uh, commissioned by Babaji, he talks about this in the autobiography, to write a book on the uh, blending of East and West, the Bible and the Gita. And he set about to do that, and Babaji promised that when he was done with that writing, Babaji would come to Yukteswar. So when Yukteswar was done, he was down at uh, Raigat Lane, which is in the area of Sri Rampur, and lo and behold, Babaji appeared. And of course, Yukteswar was filled with excitement and joy at that meeting. And he said to Babaji, wait, just for a minute, I'm going to go get us some sweets. And he hurried off down the road. And he came back, and Babaji was gone. And Yateshwar said, I felt really hurt. I felt really hurt. And, you know, where did he go? I was just getting sweets. And so some time went by, and Yukteshwar was in the home of his guru, Lahiri Mahashai in Banaras. And he comes in the door, and he walks into the other room to see Lahiri. And Lahiri says to Yukteswar, Didn't you see him? And Yukteshwar goes, Who? And Lahiri comes to him. He put his, puts his hand on Yukteswar's chest. He takes him by the hand, walks him into the front room. And there's Babaji. And Teshwar just stands there. He's still nursing a little bit of that hurt. And he doesn't bow. He doesn't bow at the feet of this great Mahavatar. And Lahiri can't believe this. I mean, he's watching this and it's like, What are you doing? And Babaji says to him, You're still mad at me, aren't you? (laughs) I don't think it was exact words, but that was the gist of it. You're still annoyed with me. And Yukteshwar says, well, you came out of thin air and you left into thin air. What am I supposed to do? You know, I, he, and, and Babaji said, I said I would come to you. I didn't say how long. I would stay. <laughs> and so at that point then, Babaji says, you were so excited. It fairly, you know, your restlessness fairly extinguished me into the ether." And at that point Yukteswar says he was deeply humbled. He got it. He bowed at Babaji's feet. And then Babaji just patted him on the shoulder. And then he said, child, you need to meditate more. Your gaze is not yet faultless. You couldn't see me standing here in the radiant light. He was right there in the doorway. And, we can marvel and be awed by this encounter of two great avatars and wonder <laughs> how can this be you know what level are they talking about but the point of it is a very good one for us because that restlessness that comes into us for whatever reason usually because in some moment we're drawn out of the self and you know whether it's into feeling the unfairness of the world or blaming somebody or something for something that isn't happening or just getting caught up in the movie that's going on all the time. We're drawn out and into that restlessness and it clouds our vision. We can't see clearly that which is right in front of us. There's a wonderful story in the Mahabharata, which I've always especially loved. It must have a Very profound meaning for me because it's one that's just always stuck with me all the times that we read that great scripture. And this is when uh, we have in the Mahabharata the forces of light and dark represented by the Pandavas, the five brothers, and the Kauravas. And a great battle is about to ensue over the heir to this kingdom. But prior to this, the Pandavas have been exiled. They've been thrown out of the kingdom and with the hope that, uh, by the others, that they'll never return. And some way into this banishment, about two-thirds of the way, one of the brothers, Arjuna, the great disciple of Krishna, is told, the war is coming. It's not long off. You have got to go to Lord Shankara, to the great Shiva in the Himalaya, and win from him this boon, this divine astra, without which you are not going to be able to win this war. Now Arjuna is a great soldier, and no one can beat him, but he needs evidently this one more weapon in his arsenal. And there's symbolism to all of this. And... He goes up into the Himalaya and he makes this long pilgrimage and he comes to this, you know, maybe high plateau area and he creates this earthen altar there to worship the Lord and to do tapasya, to win the grace of the Lord. And he goes into this meditation and he is disturbed by this sound a little ways off and he turns around and he realized that that there's this wild boar charging right in his direction. And he reaches for his bow and arrow, he strings the bow and he shoots the boar and it drops down dead. But simultaneously he sees that another arrow has struck the boar right at the same time. In his mind this has violated all hunting etiquette. Because as far as Arjuna is concerned, he saw it first. And so he approaches this hunter and he's mad. He's furious that this hunter has encrouched on his kill. And <clears throat> this verbal tussle ensues and it starts to get really heated. And it turns into a fight between these two and Arjuna, he's the greatest fighter in the world. Krishna says so. But this archer is really, this, this hunter is really giving him battle. And he's falling and he's staggering and he's getting punched and he's getting hurt. And the war takes on a more ugly hue and they're both bleeding and it's going on and on and on. And finally Arjuna, he's, I mean, he can't do it. He realizes he's not going to be able to take this hunter down And he stands there and he thinks to himself, what has happened? What am I doing? What am I doing? And he realizes, I came here to worship Shiva. What is happening? He drops his bow. He goes back to his little altar. There's a lingam there, which is sacred to Shiva. He picks up a garland. He puts it on that Shiva lingam. And he closes his eyes again to meditate. And when he's done meditating, he opens his eyes and the garland isn't there. And this is momentarily very disturbing. He turns around and he sees there the hunter. And the hunter is wearing the garland. And he realizes that all the while he was doing battle with the Lord himself. And he realizes that And Shiva explains this to him in that instance, I was testing you. I had to know that you were worthy enough for me to give you this divine astra, that you would utilize it in the right way, not just for the sake of having this weapon, but that you would use it only if you needed it and in the right circumstance. Yogananda says that sometimes as we approach God, God pulls away a little bit. It may be viewed as or experienced as a test or a perceived absence, but that he pulls away a little bit. And that is to draw upon, to test the fullness of our love. But he says, it's all the sweeter then when God does come and we are like we are like that one that is close to god on the path all of us to get this far that's real that's true and so these things do happen to us and we sometimes feel what we perceive as a distance but it's not really there's another a uh, story that we came across reading uh, again in the Mahabharata, because we've been rereading this recently, of Krishna, and he he's talking to Arjuna on the battlefield, and throughout the whole of this battle, which again is an outer battle, but very much and at its core an inner battle, and Arjuna is always trying to understand what the Lord is telling him. And so they're talking about karma and, again, why this war is happening and why it needs to happen, this battle of light and dark and, and killing one's own, which can be perceived as a part of the self, but which is the little self, not the great self, which Krishna is trying to reveal. And so these beautiful dialogues happen frequently. And at a certain point, Krishna says to Arjuna, Arjuna, it's easy. It's easy to win my grace. He says, whenever you are doing anything, whenever you are saying anything, whenever you are giving something away, whenever you are sacrificing something, if you do that to me, if you give that to me, if we give that to God, then your karma will be gone. There won't be that attachment to the fruits of our labors, to the things that we do or are an instrument for. And in that freedom of karma, you will be able to come to me. But it it so caught my attention because we can believe God. We can believe Krishna. It's easy to win my grace. God is not hiding from us. It's all about timing, perfect timing. Timing. Swamiji would oftentimes say that Master said to him, God will come to you at the end of this life. I've heard that as long as I can remember. And Swamiji many times would share that. He would talk about how he would try to tune in to always what Master had said to him. And if we think about it, you know, if, if God had come to Swamiji as one unbroken, blissful meditation, we wouldn't be here. Maybe we would have the karma to be with him in that meditation. But Ananda would not be, this work would not be, and so it wasn't like that for him in his life. His life was outward activity, tremendous activity and the expression of creativity. But, God did not say, I will not be with you. God did not say, I will not inspire you. I will not help you. I will not guide you. None of that. God was there all the time. And that's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing in community, in ananda, in the spiritual life. He was there all the time, and he is there all the time. So he is not hiding from us. Place hide and seek, he does. He does do that. But he is not hiding. He is right here, right with us. And if we can just turn our perspective a little bit, then we see that the moment is sacred. Every moment is sacred. Every moment is to be treasured. It's not something that exists outside the self, or maybe if we're lucky in the far off distant future or some far off distant incarnation, it's right here, it's right now, it's in this moment. And God is here with us. Thank you.
1: This song, God, 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 words by Paramahansa Yogananda, melody by Swami Kriyananda. Please sing along with us on the chorus, God, God, God. From the depths of slumber, as I ascend, the spiral stairways of wakefulness, I will whisper, whisper, the food, and when I break my fast of nightly separation from Thee, I will taste Thee and mentally say, God. No matter where I go, the spotlight of my mind will ever keep turning on thee. And in the battle din of activity, my silent war cry will be
2: gone.
1: storms of trial shriek and when worries howl at me i will drown their noises loudly chanting god of memories, on that magic cloth
2: will I emboss God.
1: night in time of deepest sleep, when my peace dreams and calls joy, joy, and my joy comes singing
2: evermore.
1: Sleeping, serving, meditating, chanting, divinely loving. My soul will constantly hum,
2: unheard by. Everyone.